Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. A couple of years ago, comedian Tig Notaro experienced a series of life-changing events in almost unbelievably quick succession. The experience culminated in a cancer diagnosis that terrified her. But in the midst of all that, she turned to the thing she loved to do the most. It was like, I've lost everything. I have nothing to lose now. And I don't care what people know. I don't care what people think. I don't care. I don't care. I care so much I don't care, you know. And um, I love stand-up, and I had the show booked, and I wanted to do comedy one more time if this is happening to me. And it's supposed to happen to other people. I know it's cliche to say that, but you can't help but go through that. And um, I really was scared I was going to die. And I wanted one more chance to do stand-up. Someone recorded that gig, and it was released as an album called Live. And it's pretty remarkable. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Tig Notaro about being diagnosed with cancer and openly sharing that fact days later in what is now considered a legendary set at Largo here in Los Angeles. She'll talk about how it changed her life and career, but not necessarily her outlook on life. I feel like I was a relatively happy, content person before this happened, and so this was kind of a wasted lesson, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't have friends or family that would be like, you know, who needs a wake-up call? Then later I'll talk to John Darneal, He's best known as a singer, a guitarist, and a songwriter. He's the frontman of the band The Mountain Goats. Music journalists like to talk about his lyricism and, you know, singer-songwritery stuff. Darnell's also a big metal fan, so I asked him, did you ever want to be a straight-up rock star? No. I mean, no. The appeal for me is the appeal of, you know, wanting to be Leonard Cohen. You know, want to be the guy who's written something that when somebody hears it, they go, wow, that reached as far inside as it could go. You know, that's, that's what I wanted. We'll talk about his music and his acclaimed novel, which is called Wolf in White Van. And lastly, I'll tell you about one of the deepest songs ever recorded about being black and a woman. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So... A few years ago, Tig Notaro came over to my house to record an interview for Bullseye. My friend Dave Holmes was hosting. It was great. Then, like, I don't know, six months later, Tig got C. diff, which is a superbug that left her hospitalized and nearly killed her. Then her mother died completely unexpectedly. She tripped and hit her head. Then Tig went through a breakup. Then on a basically just a regular visit to the doctor, she ended up getting diagnosed with breast cancer. It was a pretty rough four months for Tig. She told the story of her diagnosis on the stage of Largo in Los Angeles shortly after it happened, and the performance became kind of a phenomenon and launched her into the national media spotlight. She even went on the Katie Couric show. If you haven't heard it, here's how Tig opened her show that night two years ago at Largo. Good evening. Hello. I have cancer. How are you? Hi, how are you? Is everybody having a good time? I have cancer. How are you? Ah, it's a good time. 
Diagnosed with cancer. <sighs> Feels good. Just diagnosed with cancer. <sighs> God. Tig is no longer dying. Well, I mean, we're all dying to some extent, but she's doing a lot better these days. A documentary chronicling that performance and her life, simply called Tig, is available for streaming now on Netflix. She's also got a fantastic new HBO special called Boyish Girl Interrupted. I talked with Tig Notaro last year. Tig Notaro, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you back. It's great to be back. Um, it's great to not be dying. Although <laughs> I, I think our bodies start... Um, yeah, like you, you're only growing until you're like... 25. Th- 25? I think, I think it's 25, and then you start for sure dying. Just like things start falling apart? Yeah. How are, how are you doing? I just asserted that you're doing way better, and I know you're doing way better than you were when you were doing as bad as it gets. Yeah, but. two years ago. I even had pneumonia, which is what um, led into contracting C. diff. So I essentially had three illnesses that could have killed me if I hadn't... I had them all at the same time. Oddly, I was lying in the hospital with C. diff and didn't know I had cancer yet. Because um, they 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 gave you antibiotics for the pneumonia. pneumonia, and then that wipes out all of the good bacteria in your body and gives and sort of opens an opening for a superbug like C. diff, right? Yeah, um, some people obviously don't have a problem with it, but um, I think possibly because my um, health and immune system was compromised I, from cancer, not knowing. I think that's honestly why I had pneumonia and why I was susceptible to C. diff. That's my feeling, and some of my doctors that I've talked to think that it's it's pretty likely as well uh, because I'm relatively young, and, you know, getting pneumonia, just if I had gotten pneumonia that year, it would have been like, wow, I had pneumonia that year. Yeah. And then it just, like, kind of kept going. But, but yeah, I'm in really good... Um, Health, as far as I know, I'm going to my follow-up with my oncologist after I leave here. So I guess the news could switch. But as far as I know, I'm in good health. And I have to go in uh, every few months to see. You know, like when you did that Largo show that became your album Live, I remember seeing you post a Facebook update just on your regular Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know. I don't even think it was like a fan page or something. But I think you just posted a Facebook update that said, um, hey, uh, I'm doing this Largo show tonight. There's going to be a really special guest. and You Mm -hmm. should really come out, Mm -hmm. which I guess was Louis C.K. Yeah. Um, But I kind of wonder, like, (laughs) if... If it had not yet occurred to you to talk about this diagnosis that night or if you were just burying the lead. Um, I was definitely burying the lead. And um, I I didn't want to make the night about me and put too much pressure on, you know, I didn't want to be like, hey, I'm going to be disclosing some intense stuff. Uh, I think before that update on Facebook, the last update I, I probably put, I think, was I just sat in a chair and I remember people liking and being like, you're hilarious. But it was actually based in like, I can't believe I just sat in a chair. I've been so sick and nobody knew like what I was going through. And so when I decided to do that show, I just um, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what I was capable of. I didn't know if I was going to back out the last minute. So I just wanted to make it like, you know, if you don't. If you don't care about me, there's going to be um, an exciting pop-in. 
So can you can you tell me why you weren't telling people about your condition to that point and why you decided to tell people about your condition on the show that night? Well, before all this happened, I was pretty kind of removed in a way and more private. And uh, I wasn't somebody that would just update like, you know, I mean, certain people that update all the time would have had a field day if they were going through what I went through, you know, selfies of lying in the hospital on drugs. And but I didn't it didn't even dawn on me to share that with anybody. And um, and so as I was making my way through all of that horror um, when I finally got diagnosed, that's when I kind of snapped. I was like, this is, I have, I've lost everything. I have nothing to lose now. And I don't care what people know. I don't care what people think. I don't care. I don't care. I care so much. I don't care, you know? And, um, I just, I love stand up, and I had the show booked and I wanted to do comedy one more time if, you know, I like I said before, I saw how quickly life falls apart, and I was looking at myself, like, this is ha- you know this is happening to me, and it's supposed to happen to other people. I know it's cliche to say that, but it, you can't help but go through that, and um, I just I really was scared I was gonna die, and I wanted one more chance to do stand up, and so. I got diagnosed on July 25th, and it took me nine or ten days to go get my prognosis and make an appointment because it was all through a phone call, my diagnosis. And and my friends were like, go to the doctor. You know, they were so like, what are you doing? And I said, you know, why don't you try losing your mother out of nowhere? And And I couldn't eat food still at that point. I had lost over 20 pounds and was in the middle of a breakup. I was like, I'm not rushing off to find out my news of my cancer. You know, I just, I needed a break. And so I decided to go on stage and do comedy one more time the day after my prognosis came in and just went, hey, (laughs) I have cancer. How you doing? You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the stand-up comedian Tig Notaro. Her recent stand-up special, Boyish Girl Interrupted, is now available on HBO, and you can find her documentary, Tig, on Netflix. At the beginning of that set, you say um, how weird it is to do your normal material, how weird it would be. to do, You acknowledge that it would be weird to do regular jokes. Yeah. And you talk... Uh, for about half an hour about your diagnosis and about going through the C. diff and the breakup and and so on and so forth. And then you say, well, is there anything else I should talk about? And someone asks that you tell a regular joke that you had alluded to at the beginning as something Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't do. So uh, I want to play it because it's such an amazing combination of a joke that I've seen you do before and Uh love seeing you do in ordinary circumstances. Yeah. And uh, the subtext that uh, the whole rest of the set has been about you facing death. Yeah, yeah. There's a topic that you'd like to hear a silly joke about. <laughs> Tell the bee joke. Tell the bee joke? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was driving here.
And, um, ugh, there's a lot of traffic. And my car hadn't moved in several minutes. I was just sitting there. And my window was down. And a bee flew past me. Do you have any idea how frustrating it is? When a bee passes you in five o'clock traffic? You can't open with the regular stuff and then segue into the cancer stuff. That would be weird, right? Uh, yeah. I, but you can't really close with a close with a, a known solid home run hit. Yeah. <laughs> I I didn't know what I was doing and I uh it's funny because the bee joke even you say you've heard it, but it's not anything I've done on TV or an album or it's just something I it kind of amused me and I do here and there. And before my diagnosis, it was this joke that kept popping up in my life where I'd go to a friend's wedding or, you know, some event and somebody would be like, I saw you do a show or an open mic and you did this bee joke and it just kept popping up. And so it was that's why it was on my mind. And it's funny because I'm known for this bee joke. I mean, obviously for the cancer and Taylor Dane story and whatever other things I've done. But that bee joke, it was such a throwaway in my in my set before. And now I do shows and people are like, do the bee joke. When you were on the show a couple of years ago, I didn't do the interview. I was on paternity leave, mm-hmm. um, and Dave Holmes was guest hosting for me. And I thought, it's so cool that Dave can interview Tig mm-hmm. because maybe they can talk about what it's like to be a gay entertainer in Hollywood mm-hmm. who who doesn't want their persona to be shaped primarily by the fact that they're gay. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't remember your your management or something like that said, you know, Tig prefers not to talk about her mm-hmm. uh, romantic life in interviews and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was totally fine. I mean, we're mm-hmm. not in the business of talking about anybody's romantic life yeah. that doesn't want to. But you you have, since going through this cancer stuff, talked a little bit. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, I would say even a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, wasn't something that you did before. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there was a relationship between those two things. Directly. I mean, it was like I was mentioning before of like the feeling of losing everything. And I didn't care what people knew. I didn't care what people thought. And I didn't care how you saw me, what you defined me as. I might be dead in a few months. You know, I just I really it was all gone. Um, And it was something that in my past I just I thought I just don't want people knowing or involved in my personal life, friends, family, uh, romantic stuff. It's just, it's none of your business. And um, not that I think everybody's welcome into my life on every level, but um, it's more enriching, I th- I've found, to be more open to the world and people and and letting them in with personal stories 
to a certain degree, and I think people connect more. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedian Tig Notaro. You can find information about her documentary, albums, and live shows at tignotaro.com. I wanted to pull an old uh, clip of you doing stand-up. Oh, um, no. It's like, not ancient, uh-huh. uh, like four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, peak at your game, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, but old enough that it's not about cancer. Yeah. Um, just to kind of demonstrate that you have a lot of jokes uh, that aren't about cancer. Yeah, oh, okay. Um, this was probably your best known bit before you had that horrible four week stretch. Um, and I, you know, it's like the kind of thing that I bet people like still like yell it at you on the road once in a while. Um, I wonder what this is. People yell things at me all the time. Well, it's not Taylor Dane. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) Go ahead and play it, Julia. I did, uh, some shows in Mexico and uh, like everywhere I go, as soon as I check into my hotel room, I immediately hang the do not disturb sign on the door. Or for the Spanish speaking, no moleste. <laughs> that was kind of a creepy feeling, <laughs> hanging that on my door before bed. <laughs> Nope. No moleste. Not tonight. Try a couple doors down. And actually, after I did that joke one night in Omaha, this guy came up to me. And he said, just so you know, I'm a Spanish interpreter. And moleste means to annoy or bother. I know. No moleste. So he thought that I thought there were sexual predators running up and down the halls of the resort where I was staying and that all the management decided to do Instead of springing for some security, it was just to run down to the local Kinko's and run off some shoddy, low-rent signs that just said, no moleste. So like you're in your room at night and someone's banging on the door, trying to beat the door down, and you're like, No moleste. And he's like, oh, sorry. Sign was turned the wrong way. Said, see, moleste. Uh, Okay, cool. Could you just turn that around for me? Thanks, creepy. Um, That's my guest, Tig Notaro. from her 2011 album, Good One. Um, I don't, you know, when I think back to seeing you perform um, before all of this stuff went down, I don't think of you as uh, hiding your sexuality or, um, 
you know, the, I don't remember bits about, oh, me and my boyfriend were mm-hmm. out, blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and But at the same time, it, it occurred to me when your publicist said that, like, oh, I guess, yeah, I guess she doesn't, has never, I guess, huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what it made me wonder at the time and still was if if that idea of just not wanting to be defined by that was part of why you sort of left that out. Yeah. I mean, all of it. It, it, I would say being gay, being a woman, uh, having cancer, any of those things obviously could be a defining, like, female comedian, gay comedian, cancer. Um, And that's what it goes back to, like I was saying, is that it, it, uh, however you want to think of me is fine, but um, it just, it's not a part of where I come from now. Uh, that fear of like, don't define me this way. Don't, like, uh, whatever. <laughs> like, you know, it's funny because there are, there are, I imagine, positive parts of it too. Like when I was Googling around reading interviews that you'd done recently and stuff like that to prepare for this, um, I went on uh, After Ellen, the uh, LGBT entertainment website, and there was a bunch of articles about you that, st- that started – out comedian Tig Notaro. Yeah. And I was like, well, I guess, I mean, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you know, on the one hand, sure, that can be limiting if that's the extent of how people think about you. But on the other hand, like it is genuinely, you know, it's exciting for people. You sure, know? sure. It's I mean, like what a lovely thing. Yeah. And I have to say that my audiences are so... Cool. It, it's the most amazing mix of people. I mean, you see, I always call them the pear-shaped housewives with one boob, you know, <laughs> <laughs> cancer survivors and um, gay people and um, the bearded hipster crowd, comedy nerds, um, everything across the board. I feel so lucky for that. And um, it's it's really a sea of of everyone and I'm loving stand-up more and more. You'll hear the rest of my talk with Tig Notaro after a break. Plus, I'll talk to John Darneal of the band The Mountain Goats. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Be honest. Are you a music nerd or a fledgling music nerd who wishes they knew more about what's out there? The All Songs Considered podcast from NPR Music is here to help. All Songs Considered is NPR's music discussion and discovery podcast. Bob Boylan and Robin Hilton share the best of the best new and upcoming music, including a conversation with producer, DJ, and musician Mark Ronson about the allure of vintage sounds and new music. Find lots of songs you'll fall in love with on All Songs Considered every Tuesday at npr.org podcasts and on the NPR One app. Ty is a pedantic person. I think when he pronounces these words, it's, it's in a very show-offy way. Gyro. Gyro. Sacre bleu. Sacre bleu. Ayers Rock. Uluru. <laughs> what you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. They are actual litigants with real cases. They call in via Skype to Judge John Hodgman's court, the real people's court. Now I call you to Judge John Hodgman's Internet Court. Find it at MaximumFun.org 
or wherever you download podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the stand-up comedian Tig Notaro. We've been talking about a set she performed in 2012, just a couple of days after she'd been diagnosed with cancer. Here's a clip from the new documentary, Tig. Ira Glass talks about my guest Tig Notaro's first appearance on This American Life and how he encouraged her to talk more on stage about the horrible things going on in her life. Tig really just brought down the house. And, and immediately as we, when we got done with that, I was like, okay, what else you got? You're now like an audience favorite. Like, you know, our whole radio audience, millions of people, they want to hear you again. Like, what else you got? He suggested doing a piece about the recent tragedies in my life. He said, you need to do that on stage. First of all, she made clear, like, she had no interest in that at all. I guess there was a part of me that was a little offended that he would think that there was humor in this. She didn't know how she would go about that, and she just, like, it didn't seem fun or interesting in any way at all. Like, of course he knew I was not going to do this material. Like, my mother died, and I can't eat food, and I'm withering away. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's like, what? where is the humor? I just didn't, I didn't get it. Ira Glass and Tig Notaro from the new documentary Tig, which is currently streaming on Netflix. I feel like uh, I would lose my interviewer's license if I didn't ask you about um, how going through this changed you. You talked a little bit about nothing mattering made you feel like you could just express yourself and be mm-hmm. yourself on stage because who cares? Mm-hmm. W- was there anything else? Well, I feel like I was a relatively happy, content person before this happened. And so I always tell people that, um, you know, that this was kind of a wasted lesson, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't have friends or family that would be like... You know who needs a wake-up call. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) although that might be the case, um, I still – you can't help but have wake-up calls and you can't help but just – everything is just a little more heightened and keenly – you know, I'm just – I'm keenly aware of the fact that I am alive so, I mean, even with my cancer now, if it comes back, it's not curable. And um, and I live with that. And not that I live in fear, but I'm keenly aware that my cancer is not going to be curable if it does rear its head again. And so, you know, I have fear that comes up. There's certain things that, you know, I'll get a pain in my armpit or my hip and you know if my cancer comes back it'll it'll come back in my bones or my blood or my lungs something like that it'll resurface in a final stage of cancer in some other part of my body and so I have those fears and I have to go to the doctor for things I wouldn't care or notice before and um, I had pain in my hip and and uh, I ignored it. I just didn't think much of it. And I've been working on trying to start a foundation. And I was online researching and reading. And um, there was this list of famous breast cancer um, 
survivors and people that also passed away. And John Edwards' widow was on there, Elizabeth Edwards. And um, and then I just started reading more about her, and her cancer came back in her hip. And when I was reading this, I was like, oh, my gosh, my hip. And I had been – it was so painful to get up or walk around and – and I told my girlfriend, I said, you know, my hip has been hurting for three days, and I didn't think anything of it. And then she was like, well, you have to go to the doctor tomorrow. And I was like, yeah. And we were driving to the doctor the next morning, and the car ride was completely silent, very stressful. Um, we get to the doctor. I'm examined. And the doctor was saying, you know, your hip is not actually on the outside, like where everyone points to their hip. It's actually um, inside, like the groin area. Like, and, um, and he said, um, so I'm going to give you some uh, anti-inflammatory. You're, you have some inflammation. And, you know, he left the room. And my girlfriend and I burst into tears just crying and, and then – holding each other the doctor comes back in and we're sobbing <laughs> and I said this is probably the most emotional response you've ever seen to you have inflammation uh, <laughs> and uh, you know it's like I had cancer and and uh, but he was saying you know you're smart to come in but if you feel pain in this area this is this would be a very bad sign but where you have pain right now it's unrelated and so you're just sad because he gave you a generic Advil. <laughs> exactly. Or that it wasn't a more dramatic <laughs> diagnosis. But uh, but that kind of stuff happens and pops up where it's not just like, oh, my hip hurts or, oh, I have this weird pain in my armpit. You know, it's like, oh, I have a pain in my armpit. Off to the doctor, you know. <laughs> so that is my life now. Well, Tig, I really appreciate you taking the time to come back and be on the show. It was really great to get to talk to you. I appreciate you and your time and chatting with me. Tig Notaro. The documentary about her Largo performance and her life since is called Tig. It's currently available for streaming on Netflix. Her recent stand-up special, Boyish Girl Interrupted, is also now available on HBO. You can find out more on her website, which is tignotaro.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. John Darneal is the lead singer and sometimes the only member of the band The Mountain Goats. He's known for his hyper-literate, often narrative lyrics, sometimes fictional, sometimes confessional. Here's some of High Hawk Season from his album All Eternal's Deck. I heard the wings beat on the wind tonight As the heat stole power from the darkening light I saw the streets fill up with people that I knew. People who look like you. Rise if you're sleeping, stay awake. Now he's taken his writing in a new direction with Wolf and White Van, a novel. Like many of his songs, it explores the unromantic alienation of youth. It's a story about a young man disfigured in a suicide attempt in the play-by-mail role-playing game he creates while he stares into the ceiling cracks in his hospital bed. I talked to John Darnell last year. 
John Darnell, it is really great to have you on Bullseye again. Uh, welcome back. Thank you. Good to see you. What media were you obsessed with as a teenager? Uh, science fiction paperbacks, comic books, um, and fantasy posters. Like Michael Whelan uh, is this guy who did Unicorns and Lord of the Rings calendars and stuff like that. Uh, and the cover of the of the, both Sirothan Goal albums, all three Sirothan Goal albums, uh, One Foot in Hell, Fire and Frost. Why did you choose Conan for Sean, the protagonist of the novel, who is obsessed with Conan? Uh, when I was a comic book fan, my dude was the Hulk, um, but you know, you had people who were. When I was a comic book fan, the the X Men cult was just beginning. Like the people for whom X Men was the only real great one, right? It's Chris Claremont era. Um, and you know, there were people who liked the Inhumans and 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 this and that and the other thing. But the Conan guys. They didn't care about Iron Man. They didn't care about any of those guys, right? They cared about Conan and maybe Red Sonja, right? And so, but uh, but I was sort of, that's the sort of, of zealotry that I'm fascinated by and drawn to because I'm not one of those. I'm a polymath. I'm a guy who can't just say, well, I only listen to classical music or whatever. I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm omnivorous and, and starving all the time. And so I got to, you know, know as much about as many things as I can. But the Conan guys... They don't want to know as much about it as they can about anything else. They just wanted to know from Conan. And you would see them at the comic book store, you know, looking like Glenn Danzig going, is the new Conan here? <laughs> I thought that was the best. What kind of music did you listen to as a teenager? Um, I mean, I went through a lot of a lot of phases, right? But I think I can – where do you want to start? Do you want to start grade school or do you want to wait until we get to high school? Or Did, did you have – I mean, I couldn't even tell you what kind of music I listened to in grade school. I mean, I guess I had a – copy of Bad on cassette. I really think you'll like this story. So I had what to me was a kick-ass record collection, right, of these children's movie soundtracks mainly, and a couple of odder things. And a little bit of the new Christy Minstrels. The little new Christy Minstrels for you. Green, green, I'm going away to the far side of the hill, right? Oh, and man, you got that new Andy Williams. <laughs> oh, yeah. So so we moved, right? We moved around a lot when I was a kid. And, uh, and I'm at a new school, and the kids were bigger. It was a multi-grade classroom. I was really intimidated and... and uh, and scared, you know, that I wasn't going to fit in and make friends. I had to leave my friends for the third time in, you know, three years. And then after about a week or so of school, the teacher, Mr. Brown, says, well, you know, we have a record player from the AV department. If you guys want to bring in records to play from 2.30 to 3, you can do that. And I went, I will bring in my records, and they will see that I'm a good dude, you know, that I have good records, and I'll make friends that way. Fortunately for me, I'm a forgetful person. So I, the next morning I woke up, I didn't bring in the Aristocats soundtrack. I didn't bring in the Music Man, right? I didn't bring in the creeping sounds of the haunted house, right? Everybody else brought in Elton John and the Beatles and stuff that I had never even engaged with in any way. And I knew it's like, if you had brought your kids record, they would have clowned you from now to the end of time. Right? It's like dodged a bullet by forgetting stuff. But so then I would, like everybody else, I, I rode along. I felt like I was betraying the music I loved when I got into the Beatles and the Bay City Roars for third and fourth grade. In fifth grade, I discovered Hart. That was my favorite band for several years. Everybody else was into Aerosmith, who I liked fine, but Hart was the best. Um, and Lake, and who else? I started getting into Jethro Tull, early Jethro Tull, and early Genesis. And that was my stuff through freshman year when I got into Lou Reed and David Bowie and renounced all that proggy stuff, uh, a lot of which I now like because I've stopped renouncing things and I just listened to everything. But at the time, you know, it was like either you listen to this or you listen to that. But the two can't occupy the same space. That's sort of infantile thinking. We once did a show together in San Francisco, and in the van on the way to the show from the hotel, um, we got engaged in this big conversation about Devin the Dude. Yes. The rapper Devin the Dude, Houston from rapper Houston. Devin the Dude. 
um, who's probably my favorite rapper. And um, he's tremendous. I never, never in a thousand years, even knowing how democratic your tastes were, <laughs> um, would have expected to be able to engage you in a conversation about Devin the yeah, Dude. Yeah, but I mean, Devin the Dude is a great writer. I mean, if you write anything at all, right, any kind of fiction or poetry, you have to like what Devin does because he's such a fine storyteller. I mean, that to the extreme, it's just one of the all-time great concept records of listening to, you know, a slice of this guy's life as he tells it. I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a pretty cunning work of fiction, but, you know, it's a... Yeah, he's just great. He's one of the all-times at that. Well, it's funny because, you know, the, one of the quotes that everyone trots out in every article about you and the Mountain Goats right. is... Uh, Sasha Fair Jones. Is Sasha Fair Jones. Ten, ten, ten years or so ago, Sasha Fair Jones wrote in The New Yorker that you were the finest non-hip-hop lyricist. Yeah, America's best non-hip-hop lyricist, yeah. You know, thinking about that does highlight that, um, you know, rock lyrics tend to be much more impressionistic than Mountain Goat's lyrics. I guess that's right. I I, mean, I don't think a lot about because the, the lyricists I listen to, they're not doing the same thing, but it's a similar space. You know, Bill Callahan, you know, uh, or Christine Fellows or Joni Mitchell, you know, they're not, they're telling stories. And, and, uh, and yeah, the other rock lyrics, like if, if something has lyrics that I can hear and understand but don't move me, then I just don't listen to it. You know, it's like, I listen to a lot of metal where you can't understand the lyrics, right? And that's fine. But, but yeah, if it's like one of those rock bands singing lyrics that I can't really get much out of, then it's never really interested me. So That's interesting because, you know, I mean, rock music is often the appeal of it is just the lyrics are an accessory to the feeling that it gives you. I guess. I mean, that's where I came up through Prague where the lyrics aren't great, but they are engaging. And they're clearly bookish people like yourself. You know, it's like people who've read The Wind in the Willows or whatever. And and there's a whole strain, I mean, a big strain of rock that's, you know, where you don't have to check your brain at the door. The first Pink Floyd record, you know, um, speaking of The Wind in the Willows. And Lou Reed and Bowie and, uh, and even Mark Bolan, who does some interesting stuff as far as, you know, he's just doing rock lyrics, bang a gong, get it on. But there's a cleverness in there. And that's what, you know, it always, music always felt like a, like it was tightly related to literature for me. So I don't want to just move my body. I want the whole thing, you know. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to John Darneal. He's the front man for the band The Mountain Goats and last year published his first novel, Wolf in White Van. The protagonist is an isolated guy who creates a play-by-mail role-playing game for strangers. One of the storylines in uh, your novel, Wolf in White Van, is about this game and a lawsuit that is brought against him by um, two young people who... uh, um, By their parents. By their parents, yeah, who one of whom dies and one of whom nearly dies in the process of trying to bring the game to life or something. Right. And it's very reminiscent of... Uh, the lawsuit that was famously brought right. against Rob Halford and Judas Priest. Yes. Um, By and the it, parents of uh, uh, James Vance and Ray Belknap. Yeah. I was looking at YouTube clips about right. this uh, this morning, and I ran across it's this. It's a great way to start your day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I ran across this, this news story about the event, the contemporaneous news story. I wanted to play a little clip of it. Ray was dead within seconds. Jay wounded himself, survived for three years, but later died from what doctors termed complications of his injuries. James and Ray were chanting, do it, do it, do it. They did not even know where it came from. 
It came from the Judas Priest album, according to Dr. Wilson Brian Key, a professor of marketing who has written extensively on subliminal messages. He says the song, Better By You, Better Than Me, contains the barely audible words, Do It, repeated over and over. Do you remember when this happened? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember the exact year, but, I mean, yeah, there's a documentary about it called Dream Deceivers. That I mean, this is an obvious cue for, for my story. It's like I go a lot of different ways. One of them survived and one of them died. Um, and uh, and the one who survived was disfigured and his, his parents brought suit. Uh, but there was a great story, actually, that ran very recently in GQ about this. It was like the 20-year anniversary of this case or something. And, and it told a bunch of the story that never got mentioned in those stories, which was of their lives prior to the event, right? And they had been kids from terribly displaced homes with all kinds of conflict in them. And they had many, many issues that were not being addressed by their parents and nobody knew what to do with them. And like, this was just, this, it was only the last stop in, in like, it, it, it reconstructs the whole day that they did it. There's a lot more to it than this. They went to a playground and shot themselves. It was, it was, uh, it's a great story. You know, Rob, Rob Halford was on this show a few years ago. Get out of town. Well, if you see this documentary, he's on the stand, and he's he's a very charming, he's a, a you know a, a guy with a job who's a little confused that he has to spend part of his touring season in Reno, testifying that he didn't try to kill his listeners. <laughs> you know? We actually have a clip of him on on no the kidding. stand. This is him being uh, questioned by his lawyer or the record company's right. lawyer. Better by you, better than me. You can say what I only can see. The yeah is the exhalation of breath. Yes. Uh, is that a normal part of your singing? That's the way I've always sung. That's just my style. Is there some uh, effect uh, that that uh, uh, has for the uh, aesthetic of the song? Um, it's just uh, the words performed. You know the emotion involved and the feeling that you give out when you're singing it. Are there subliminal duets on the Better By You, Better Than Me song? Absolutely not. I got the impression that he was very pained by this. Oh, yeah. Not that it was something that he could dismiss as, well, that's ridiculous just because it was ridiculous. Um, Because, you know, it was hard for him to say, you know, he doesn't have control over his art when it goes into the world. Yeah, yeah. And he wouldn't, I mean, if you make music... There's the speech that Sean gives or that he, he has his lawyer read uh, that that ties into that question. Like if you make art generally, but I think especially music, you're making something that you hope will be useful to somebody in some time when they need something that speaks deeply to them, right? And you're not doing it like when you're making it, you're not sitting there in some altruistic throne going, oh, I hope I can help some people. But that is your hope for your work, that it's useful, you know. And to allege that somebody would use such a powerful and personal tool to harm people is really, you know, to talk dirt about something that somebody was doing out of self-expression, out of something very pure and real, you know. And that's it, got to be really painful to, you know, and especially if you're a Jewish priest, every night you've got 10,000 people back then telling you, thank you for this awesome experience, you know, and for these people to go, well, that, that's false, you know, and blame something terrible on them when, in fact, the music of Jewish priest is there to comfort people who might otherwise, you know, feel too depressed to get to to get by you know it's like any other music that's what's good for is is to to uplift you know or or to help take you down 
and Judas Priest is pretty uplifting. But like, you know, some music you listen to in order to feel bad so you can dwell in that feeling for a while. But it's the same thing. It's redemptive. And, uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I think he's very confused. I think he's also playing his cards pretty close to his chest because he doesn't want to say, this is ridiculous. Of course no one would do that. What kind of crazy world do you guys live in that you think musicians are sitting here in this cabal of Satanist worshipers trying to murder their fans, you know? You'll hear the rest of my conversation with John Darnell after a quick break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Be honest. Are you a music nerd or a fledgling music nerd who wishes they knew more about what's out there? The All Songs Considered podcast from NPR Music is here to help. All Songs Considered is NPR's music discussion and discovery podcast. Bob Boylan and Robin Hilton share the best of the best new and upcoming music, including a conversation with producer, DJ, and musician Mark Ronson about the allure of vintage sounds and new music. Find lots of songs you'll fall in love with on All Songs Considered every Tuesday at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Hey gang, guess what? Bullseye is coming to a city near you. Not just on the radio or in your pocket on a podcast. We're putting on live shows as part of our first ever world tour of several American cities. Come see live interviews, comedy, and music in Los Angeles, Boston, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. in November. Tickets are going fast. You can get yours and all of the details at bullseyetour.com. That's L.A., Boston, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. If you live in one of those places or know someone who does, besides just the president or whatever, go to bullseyetour.com. By the way, Mr. President, if you're listening, you're totally invited on the show. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to John Darnell. He's best known as the man behind the mountain goats. His debut novel is called Wolf in White Van. Your protagonist, Sean, in, in your novel, Wolf in White Van, is a uh, – his art is creating this play-by-mail role-playing game. A, right. Essentially a sort of – kind of an interactive fiction in which he sends somewhat pre-written uh, storylines to people and they send back – essentially letters describing what they would do in that they situation. They ad-lib, and he plugs it into a schema. He actually, the game was written in a feat of creativity. He rarely adds anything new. Like, the game exists in a filing cabinet, and it's sort of a, a giant creative expression he did in the wake of his accident. Yeah, and he sort of, add, you know, he'll add a sentence here and there, draw on a occasion. picture on the yeah, yeah. Car, uh, on the piece of paper as, as is necessary. Um, but, you know, he presents these choices to people. Right. And... They respond to those choices, which are like go up, down, left, right, right. You know, try and get in a fight, try and hide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they respond to those with like who wants to be a millionaire style, expansive descriptions of their world because they are writing their own story. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They are. They're they're telling the story. Um, and that seems like a different relationship from the relationship of. Rob Halford at the peak of Judas Priest to his fans where the reaction that he gets back from them is maybe them screaming in unison when he's on stage or something like that. Because this guy, Sean, maybe part of what he's getting out of this is this connection with other people. Maybe, but the thing is like there's also uh, you learn, you know if you write songs that people take what you write any number of ways, right? And 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 what they hear is true for them and sometimes you go oh, no, that wasn't in that song at all. I, I, that's not even at all what I'm talking about. But you sort of have to let go of it and let people... I think that's what anybody's doing with any piece of fiction is they sort of... 
it's like uh, it, it's like a dream. You see the images, but you invest them with meaning, you know. And uh, and so, but yeah, with, with Sean, it's like Sean's trying to keep a distance from the whole thing. He sort of is. Uh, uh, he he tries to lead a quiet life where he's not too engaged with much. He's sort of fearful of engagement. You used to be a professional in the field. You used to work with emotionally disturbed young people. Yeah, I, I mean, I worked with a lot of populations. That's the one that, uh, that that I've talked the most about. But I also worked with adults when I lived when I lived here in Southern California. It must have been incredibly difficult. Um, but I also wonder if you got something out of feeling like you were directly helping people. The main thing I only ever think about is I just hope they all turned out okay. That's the that's the that's all I really ever think about. It. It's just think about my people, you know, because I, this was an everyday thing with my kids. It was a five day uh, and six and seven day a week job. And I worked the morning shift. So I show up at seven and these are kids who get sent back from school for acting out and, uh, and stuff like that. And you, you know, I was trained not to get personally involved with anything, but then in Iowa, the place I was working at had a pretty different model that involved, you know, self-disclosure and, and, and saying to, you know, your kids that you cared, which is, it was cool. I mean, it's like the way training goes is it says if you do too much self-disclosure, then you're doing work on yourself. And that's not, kids aren't in a, in a place so that you can feel better about your own trauma or whatever, you know. But, uh, yeah, when I reflect on it, I mean, just the first thing I immediately think is I, you know, I do a little math. I go, well, you know, she's 20 odd now. I hope everything turned out okay. And I think probably in most cases it did. These are strong, strong children. Uh, yeah, it's it's a hard thing to convey from outside the field. Uh, it's it, you know if you haven't worked in it, it's really it's uh, it's hard to to express. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is John Darnell. His band, the Mountain Goats, now have 16 albums under their belt and are currently touring the country. Do you ever feel? Um... And I, you know, I just, I don't mean the uh, value judgment part of the adjective I'm about to, or the, <laughs> do you ever feel, do you ever feel um, burdened by the connection that people have with your music? Does it ever feel like something that is a, a, a weight that you have to carry? Even if sometimes it's a, no, I mean no. <laughs> like, I, like I see, I see how somebody might, if you followed that line of thinking, you know. Uh, I mean, the thing is, I correct people if they say, "Well, you saved my life." I say, "No, I didn't," because I because I didn't, right? Uh, I made a thing, right? But I, I personally wasn't even there, you know. I made a thing that you happened to find in a field, say, you know, and and uh, later that day, you were hungry and you opened the thing and it was food. And so it fed you, right? Um, and that's what I did. And I'm really proud that I make that stuff that's super useful. Um, but that's no burden. I mean, that's a profound honor. It's like, it, it. I mean, it really, like, to me, it means I made good use of my time above ground, you know. And I didn't always do that. I was not always a, you know, a person that that, that you'd want to meet. And uh, and so, so, no, it's no, it can feel a little heavy, you know. But not everything that's heavy is a burden. Do you ever think or worry about your music having occult powers (laughs) (laughs) just negative consequences for people no i don't because because it's not acting unilaterally it's like you as a person who reads or listens to music or or goes to see the theater or dance or movies you're the one who does stuff with it 
The people who made it just made a thing, right? Now, you know, if I guess if everything was in the second person imperative voice, you know, like I had a song called, you know, go buy a six pack of Coke, right? <laughs> like, and then somebody did, then I would feel some responsibility for that, you know. But the only uh, songs I've ever done in that voice have been songs encouraging people to to keep their heads up, you know, and you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't do a song that was a bunch of negative commands because it's not an interesting song to me. Um, but no, at the same time, you know, what people choose to do with the art they engage, that's on them. It's, it's The art doesn't have magic powers. It's just some stuff that some people made that hopefully is useful. And if it's not useful, you hope that they cast it aside. If they feel, oh, this is dangerous to me, it's going to encourage me to do some dangerous stuff, then you hope that they don't use it. But that's not really on you. It's a, in part because when people choose to do stuff like that, they'll also use, you know, any old thing, you know, the, the, the ingredients on a Kit Kat wrapper, you know, it's like somebody who, who is following a dark vision doesn't need a specific thing to encourage them. You know? I, I want to play a little bit of uh, my guest John Darnielle and his band The Mountain Goats performing a song that actually isn't on any of uh, their albums. Uh, it's called You Are Cool. This is a song with the same four chords I use most of the time. When I've got something on my mind and I don't want to squander the moment Trying to come up with a better way to say what I want to say People were mean to you But I always thought you were cool Clicking down the concrete hallways In your spiked heels back in high school It's better to pass on through those years and come out the other side With our hearts still beating Having stared down demons and come back breathing People were mean to you I was listening to you on Fresh Air the other day And um, you were talking about this band you were in uh, Where you and a buddy wrote songs together And sort of codified and recorded them all in a sort of headlong rush. And I had never heard about this. Yeah. But it made perfect sense to me, not because uh, your songs sound like first drafts, Mm. um, you know, quite the opposite, but rather because your songs have that energy to them. an urgency, yeah, yeah. Um, And, yeah, I just, I guess I just wonder... Where do you think that comes from? That they have that quality. Even the gentle, slow songs have yeah. a quality of headlong rush. I think it's because it's something I value in music myself. So it's something I've learned how to do. You know, Joni Mitchell is the same way. That, I mean, she's obviously a lot better than me, but um, but but her songs always have this sort of. I mean, you can totally hear that they're very finely crafted and labored over. But they have this momentum. They they really just seem to be spilling out, and that's a thing. That's a thing you learn how to do because if you actually are just spilling out, it doesn't. No one's really going to care. It doesn't sound good, you know. But it's it's a thing that, in the people I listen to, for the most part, that's something that I value. So you sort of learn what the, what the craft of of doing that is. What do you think is that in your music you chose to do that, um, in the way the songs are constructed and and sung with you and, and an acoustic guitar, rather than pursuing that level of intensity through, you know, 
soaring electric guitar riffs like Judas Priest. It's just what came naturally to me. I mean, I think, one, it takes a lot of discipline to play the kind of music Judas Priest plays. And a lot of, you find with, if you watch, you know, interviews with those guys, most of the guitarists from bands like that, from Merciful Fate or Judas Priest or uh, Rainbow, they're not particularly flamboyant, extroverted-seeming people. They may look that way on stage. They dress up and they do it. But they're the type, Eddie Van Halen, you know, they're the types of guys to sit down for six hours playing scales, not because they're inherently enjoying the process, but because they can really see that, that it's improving their craft. I'm like that with words. I would sit down and write sonnets like I was 21, and I would be spending my Friday nights writing pentameters to try and get them right, and that was fun for me. Like I was like, I really wanted to write perfect pentameter lines, learning my craft, you know, learning to write uh, in a voice that's not mine and make it sound like it is me and so forth. But the type of stuff needed to become a shredder that wasn't something that you know, it, it wasn't something I wanted to do. I wanted, when I was playing guitar, I just wanted to learn enough to get these words across. I mean, these days, of course, you know, like a lot of guys regret not having played sports. I have a bunch of DVDs for scales and stuff like that, and I have the guitar grimoire. And literally, a life goal for me is to play a proper solo. Like that's something I hope to do one day. So. <laughs> John Darnell's wonderful book is called Wolf in White Van. You can find tour dates for the Mountain Goats at mountain-goats.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. Nina Simone was powerful in every way. Her piano playing was powerful, part squared-off Baroque elegance, part folksy crush. Her body was powerful, tall, broad-shouldered, broad-featured, with a ring of braided hair that wound around her head and up into a tower that extended behind her like an antenna for the Earth's magnetism. And, of course, her voice was powerful, the most powerful, literally and metaphorically. She was capable of the most tender singing you can imagine, but she could also focus her rage into a sound that you felt physically in your deepest depths. She was powerful. She was also black, a black woman to be specific, and she felt it deeply. In 1966, she recorded a song called Four Women that may still be the most powerful song about black female identity ever. Four Women has four simple verses. Each represents an iconic black woman. As the first opens, it's easy to think that Simone is singing about herself before the description turns. My skin is black My hair is woolly My back is strong Strong enough to take the pain Inflicted again and again what do they call me? My name is Aunt Sarah. My name is Aunt Sarah. Each of these women is both intimately personal and somehow universal. The second verse describes a mixed-race woman, the child of a white rapist caught between worlds. The third is a beautiful young woman who can travel between black and white, but we find out only because she's a prostitute 
And then there's one final woman, enraged by oppression, ready to fight back. A woman with the beautiful and darkly ironic name, Peaches. Simone was in many ways trapped between worlds as an artist. Her music was uncategorizable. She played piano like a classical virtuoso because she was one. She was a jazz singer with a heavy, unpredictable emotional voice. Her repertoire was as much folk and blues as it was jazz. She was a civil rights leader who sang folk songs for white audiences and classical concert halls. She fit into no one's box, white or black. But she was, above all things, Nina, herself, unafraid. That's what's so stirring about Four Women. The urgent message of the song is that black women and Nina herself are here. They are real and must be counted on their own terms. They're more than wives or rape victims or maids. They're not invisible. Nina will make you see them, make you acknowledge the pain they suffer, make you learn that they are as important as you. Simone once wrote a note to herself. I can't be white, and I'm the kind of colored girl who looks like everything white people despise or have been taught to despise. To herself, she wrote this. If I were a boy, it wouldn't matter so much, but I'm a girl, and in front of the public all the time, wide open for them to jeer and approve of or disapprove of. She was before the world, and she saw them looking at her like dirt because of her race and her gender and her hair and her features. People like her were despised, or worse, not acknowledged at all. In Four Women, Nina Simone stands up for herself and millions of others. And she says, you will see us. My name is Peaches. My skin is brown. My manner is tough. Come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abarian X. Perello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our thanks also to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, and it is hosted this week by the very, very hilarious comedians Aaron Gibson and Brian Safi, who regularly host the also very, very hilarious show Throwing Shade about LGBT and women's issues, which I just recommend both of those shows so highly. Okay, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.